Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. It's always wonderful to have a full house. We so often speak to small congregations. In Canada, we have about 40 congregations, and some of those are as small as three or four people. We call them congregations because it's nice to have it on the map, on the website, so that if there are any people in those areas, they can uh, realize there may be something there. Uh, we do have other larger congregations, the greater Toronto area, and by the way, my mayor is not Rob Ford. <laughs> I want to make that clear. Our, our mayor in Mississauga, where the headquarters is, is Hazel McCallan, and she's been in office since 1978. Mississauga is a city of over 700,000, about 720,000. It's the sixth largest city in Canada. Many people have never heard of it, but it is a large city. It's really a suburb of Toronto, but Hazel McCallan is, I think, 92 at this time. Uh, she, they tried to railroad her out of office, a few people who were getting anxious to take over, and uh, she decided, well, I'm just going to run one more time. So she puts her name on the ballot, and that's it. She doesn't run or anything like that, and I think she was down to only 78% of the vote this last time. <laughs> so... She uh, still ice skates, and she's quite a celebrity. And we have a balanced budget, as I said, so it's a, it's a nice place to live overall. The church in Canada is about 750 in round numbers in attendance each week, which is a fairly small number of people in reality. Obviously, not everyone is able to attend every week, and so we're probably around 850 or so. But the, the work in Canada really is, is as it is here and as it is every place, is doing a far greater work than our numbers might indicate. Our income in Canada is just shy of $2.7 million last year, and we could very well uh, go over uh, $3 million this year. Uh, we do print the booklets for the Spanish work, the French work, the German work, and soon the Dutch work. Uh, we have the equipment there that can print smaller numbers as opposed to outsourcing it, and so we're able to do that and make that contribution to the work in the rest of the, the world. I, I was a little confused with Mr. Ames' question there about how many are from international areas and so, how many are from the United States, because I'm from the United States. My wife and I are looking at each other thinking, well, do we raise our hands for that? But we've actually lived in Canada longer than any place I've ever lived before. Uh, we've been there don't want to say that too loud. Anyway, uh, <laughs> 12 and a half years, so uh, almost. So we've, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite an interesting thing for someone that moved all of his life early on. My father's in the military, but uh, we, we love it there, and we love the people there, and it's a very exciting work. Uh, we also produce the telecast, as many of you know, for Hong Kong and Goa in India. And some have wondered about the work there in India, how is it going? Uh, it's, it's going very slowly. Uh, we do have the telecast there. It's on twice a day, every day. And we do have a few responses. We're not sure how many because we do have some web responses possibly. I think there were, Mr. Ames mentioned 600, and I didn't remember whether that was for the year. or I think it was for the year or something like that for the year. And so we don't know how many of those are actually from Goa. Uh, what's interesting there is that the ones who have responded that we know of have asked to talk to somebody. And the first lady that uh, did so was in contact with uh, one of our members there 
in Goa, and I'm sorry, not in Goa. They will be Monday or Tuesday, whatever it takes, however long it takes to get there. But um, she called, and, and I did talk to her just briefly, but we had a terrible connection. And so I put them in touch with the Fernandeses, and they uh, gave her a call, and she shut down her shop the first Sabbath. And she's already keeping the Sabbath, and they're in contact with her, and we'll be visiting her while they're over there. They spend a month over in Goa each year. And so a lot of interesting things happening there. We've been greatly helped by uh, Mr. Tyler. We do try to work together on that project. Uh, really, they're in much better shape in some respects of, of helping out in India because they're much more familiar with it. But we do provide the broadcast, and the Fernandeses have helped us. There are members in the Ontario area that have helped us a great deal getting started there. Uh, we do hope to expand coverage sometime in the near future as we're, we're able to do so. It's called Etobicoke, uh, that, that particular city. Uh, it's, unless you are from a place, it's awfully hard to know how to pronounce something. I, I remember, I think it's Arkansas. Don't they have a place spelled Gethsemane that's pronounced Gasamane or something like that? <laughs> I, I believe that's what uh, somebody told me years ago. So it's hard to know those things. But we are uh, very excited about the work that, that is being done. The French telecast, we have about 20 uh, programs already that are edited. You can find them on the web already. But we're uh, in negotiation. We're looking at a station in Ontario, not Ontario, but in Quebec, uh, to go on the air with that particular program. We hope to be going on the air uh, very soon. We just don't know how long. It'll take, but uh, we are in active negotiations concerning that. I'm going to begin the sermon today by quoting from a commentary uh, in the Tomorrow's World magazine. It was a commentary or article, actually, in the magazine, but also was given on the web as a commentary, this one by Mr. Davy Crockett. He said, in human, the human experience, there is a great equalizer. No matter who you are... And whether we are rich, poor, or somewhere in between, everyone has the same amount of it. Your life is made of it. It is your time. Each of us has 24 hours a day, no more and no less. Our language has many expressions that revolve around time. Time is of the essence. Time is money. Time is fleeting. Passing the time killing time. And there's a memorable phrase from the book of Galatians, the fullness of time. Each day comes and each day goes. And that time is gone. Time goes by whether you use it well or poorly. Most people will tell you they feel pressured by time. There with so many activities and so many demands made upon them, they have real difficult real difficulty getting it all done. Business pursuits, family obligations, and personal activities outstrip the time available to get them all accomplished. Many people deprive themselves of sleep, trying to meet all the demands of their time. In today's sermon titled, Your Time, Your Life, I'm going to encourage each of you, as well as myself, to consider how we use the precious commodity of time. I know this is not the first sermon that's ever been given on the subject, 
I know Dr. Meredith has talked about this subject. I think Mr. Tyler and Mr. Bruce Tyler gave a sermon on this subject some time ago. Articles have been written in the magazine about the use of time. But the Bible reminds us that time is very important. It reminds us that our time in this physical flesh is very short. And the older we get, the more we realize the reality of how short time is. When we're young, we think we're going to live a long time. We know academically that someday we'll die, but that is so far away that we, we really don't think much about it. We think that we're going to be here a long, long time. But as we close in toward the end of our lives, it's another matter altogether. And James, the fourth chapter, James 4, beginning in verse 13, It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. We can have all the plans in the world. We can plan out our life. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But things don't always work out the way that we think they will. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. When we think about it, our life truly is like a vapor. If we can expand our mind to the size of the universe, to consider how big the universe is and how small planet Earth is. And so many of us in this room flew to get here for the conference. And when you look down, you can barely see an automobile. It's so tiny and so small. And when I look down on those occasions when I have a window seat, I don't like window seats. I want to be able to get up from time to time. But when I do, I look down and maybe you can see a little bit of a sparkle that shines off the windshield of a car. That's sometimes about all you can see. And you think there's somebody inside that car. And I wonder what he's doing, and I wonder what he or she is thinking, and how small we are. And when God looks down upon us, how tiny we must be, and yet we have relevance and we have importance because we are part of what God is doing. In many respects, we are as significant in this world as the bacteria on the bottom of your shoe except for the fact that God is doing something through us and that makes us incredibly important, not because of who we are, but because of God's plan and God's purpose. But our life is like a vapor. It's very short. Over in Psalm 39, Psalm 39 and verses Four through six. It says, Lord, make me to know my end. That seems like a strange prayer in some respects. Can you imagine somebody in the world praying for God to help him to know his end? To know what is my end. 
And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am, just how weak that we are as human beings. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. As human beings, we think we're so important. We think that we're accomplishing some great thing in this world. And yet, it's like a shadow. It's not even real in one sense. Or like a vapor that just dissipates and disappears. We're not as significant as we like to think that we are as human beings. In Psalm 103, Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, I'll just read a little bit of it here, verses 13 to 16. It says, As a father pities his children, so the Eternal pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. You think about the flowers that come up. One of my favorite flowers is the crocus. And I know they have them here. I, I really never knew what a crocus was until I moved to North Carolina. We spent seven years up in Asheville, actually Fletcher. And we had these little crocuses come up in the spring of the year. They were the first thing that came up. And they're kind of like a, a little tulip. And I always loved tulips. When I lived in England back in the 50s, they have tulip fields there. And I kind of fell in love with tulips. And so now this little tiny thing called a crocus. And, and it seems like it lasts about three days. And it's gone. And there's something left over there until it dies out in the winter and it just disappears. And that's the way that we are. We're here today. We flower. We have a big show, as it were. We're handsome. We're beautiful. We're dynamic. And then we're gone. And give a generation or two, and there are very few, that will be remembered. Or we might be a name on some genealogical chart, but it doesn't take very long, and we disappear. Now there are the Julius Caesars and other folks like that that people remember the names of, but that doesn't do Julius Caesar any good. He doesn't know. <laughs> He's gone. And that's the way that we are, except for God and a plan that He is working out here below. In Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, it gives special instruction for young people. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1. This is admonition for all of our young people. And I know that we have young people that do listen and are serious about the truth and want to do what's right. And unfortunately, sometimes you're like your parents. You don't always do what you know you ought to do. We're all human beings. We all make mistakes. But I know that there are those who want to do well. And here is an admonition for you. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come. And there are difficult days. My wife knows about this. Uh, I had a girlfriend in high school. She had a boyfriend in high school. We didn't know each other at the time. 
And I used to write these love notes back and forth and to uh, Sandy, was her name. And we talked about getting old together, growing old together. We were thinking, you know, someday we'll get married and we'll grow old together. And it sounded so romantic at age 18. <laughs> now my wife and I have been married maybe 45 years coming up this year. And you know, growing old together, I mean, it's wonderful to be together and it's wonderful to be alive but it's not nearly so romantic as it once seemed to be. <laughs> There's arthritis and rheumatism and bunions, and I probably better not go too far <laughs> with this list of ailments that we might have. But when you're young and you can run, I can remember when I could run like the wind. Now, maybe that was my inflated view. But you could run, and, and I've watched a ball game, I remember one time, and I just, as they were warming up, Kansas City, the Royals, and, and they, they just kind of lope across the field at a rapid pace, and I thought, I could once kind of do that. <laughs> and now, you, you run, but it just doesn't, doesn't work as well. <laughs> and now I've kind of stopped running because I'm afraid the ticker won't take it. <laughs> it it's not the same. It's not so good getting old, and yet you wish you had the wisdom with the youth that you once had. Before the difficult days draw near, and you say, I have no pleasure in them. And I know many older people over the years that I've met that say things like, I wish I could just go to sleep. I wish I could die. Because they feel like they don't have any purpose. When in reality they do, because there is a purpose even in that. And it gives others the opportunity to serve and to gain a greater reward by showing outgoing concern and serving and so forth. And we learn things even in the things we suffer. While the sun and the moon and the light and the, the, the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, before they become dim that we can't see them because of our eyesight or lack thereof, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease, the grinders, the teeth, uh, because they are few, they begin to fall out. And those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. I never could quite understand it says when one rises up at the sound of a bird. I may have told you this before, but this is one of the privileges of age. We can tell the same story over again. And people just humorous. They just know that well, he's getting old. But right here in North Carolina, a little place called Egypt, it's north of Asheville. You go up, it used to be a four-lane, and then you go east on a two-lane, kind of a flat road, and then you you go up north on a two-lane winding road, and then you turn left and go over a, a a steep mountain, and you come to a place called Egypt, and there was Cecil. And he was a glider pilot in World War II, which meant that they were towed up in the air with uh, certain men on board, maybe a half dozen or maybe a few more men on board, and, and maybe a small artillery piece or a jeep. These were fairly good-sized gliders, and they would cut them loose over the English Channel, and then they would be able to glide down to find a place to land, in the middle of the night, usually, 
and they would crash land, which is usually what happened, and men would go out, and then the pilot, Cecil and others like him, would have the opportunity to sneak back through enemy lines and find his way back to England so he could do it all over again. And Cecil heard a lot of artillery shells going off, a lot of guns going off in his experience there. And so he was a bachelor farmer out there, and I can remember so many times visiting with him. And every time, every time, he would say, You know, aren't as many birds there used to be. Hardly ever hear a bird sing anymore. Well, Cecil couldn't hear a gunshot go off, much less a bird. (laughs) So I've never quite understood this part of the Scriptures, where it says, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, Cecil couldn't hear a bird. And all the daughters of music are brought low. Music begins to be boring after a while. It all sounds the same if you have radios and you're in the car lot. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. When I lived in Michigan and drove about 4,000 miles a month, that was when you had the slower speed limit. Sometimes I'd get over that in mileage, maybe five or 6,000 miles, and I'd reach down to turn on the radio only to realize it was already on. <laughs> music is just not as exciting as it once was. Also, they are afraid of height. We don't like to get up on ladders, not nearly as high anyway. And of the terror in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden, and desire fails. Sexual desire fails. It's a burden to step over a grasshopper. For man, man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. When the dust returned to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. If we're not for a God in heaven, it would all be worthless. In Psalm 90, we're given some powerful advice. Psalm 90, verse 10 Psalm 90, verse 10, it says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. There's something curious about this psalm that I I, I never realized. I've read the Scripture many times, but if, if you just look across the page or turn the page, whatever you have to do, to go to the beginning of the psalm, it's Psalm 90. And it says at the beginning, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Yet Moses lived long beyond 70 years. What, was he 120 when he died? But he says the days of our lives are 70 years. And if reason by strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow... It's soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us. Here's the lesson. Here's the admonition. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I know I've used the analogy before, but it works. And we always have new people. Some years ago at the Feast of Tabernacles, I was reading this in the context of 
temporary dwellings that were only here temporarily. And I was going to use five apples to represent 80 years. I was going to be very generous. Every apple equaling 16 years. And so that comes to 80. Five times 16 is 80. And I didn't have apples, so I grabbed bananas. And ever since then, people give me bananas. <laughs> Ceramic bananas, candle bananas, pictures of bananas. <laughs> Please, no more. <laughs> I'm going bananas here. But when you're 16, you've eaten one. You only have four left. And when you live as long as you already have, two are gone. When I gave that sermon the first time, I was on my fourth banana. Today, I'm on my fifth. And you begin to realize really how short life is. Now, there are some who, you know, the Scripture says here that you might live to be 80. In fact, Moses lived to be 120. I don't know anybody today that lives that long, but we have many people that live into their 80s, well into their 80s, their 90s. Mrs. Kings, yes, Ms. Cox, uh, just died at age 99 in four months. That's Mr. King's uh, mother-in-law. And that's why she's not here. Uh, Shane is not here. Uh, there are a number of people. My wife's father is 97 and still quite ornery. <laughs> but it's been very good to us. Good father for her and father-in-law for me. So we do live a long time in some respects, but it's a very short time compared to eternity. And when you get to the end, you know that it, life was short. We say that we're living on borrowed time when we hit 70. And I know that Dr. Meredith hit 70 and he says he's living on borrowed time. I would say he's also living on a borrowed banana <laughs> because he's over 80. So he's borrowed time and borrowed bananas. And we hope that he eats the whole banana and maybe even another borrowed one as some people do. But our time is short. And those of you who are of that age know better than the rest of us as we get older. God instructs us to redeem the time. In Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 and verse 11, it says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what we do in the magazine on the telecast, and the letters that are written, we expose the unfruitful works of darkness. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, verse 14, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, circumspectly. These things I'm wearing are called spectacles. It comes from the root word. I remember Mr. Partian teaching this in etymology class. Spectari or something along that line means spectacle. It means sight. It has to do with sight. And circum 
We use circumference, circumvent. It means to circle around. So look around. Have our eyes wide open and look at things around. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Brethren, do you realize that we can be fools, even though we might have the truth, or we can be wise? And we all like to think that we're wise, but as I look back on my life, which I hope there's still more of it, I can see that I've walked very foolishly at times in the way that I've used the precious thing called time. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In Colossians, the fourth chapter, Colossians 4 and verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. That's a rather interesting statement. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. What in the world does that mean? Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside in the context of redeeming the time. Now, we should have friends outside the church. If if we don't have friends outside the church, if we don't have acquaintances, how can we let our light shine? My wife and I have always valued our neighbors, some more than others. But we have valued the relationships that we've been able to have, and they've not always been terribly strong relationships. Sometimes, especially in our younger years, we got too close to our neighbors because a little bit of the world rubbed off on us. I hope in our later years of life, and I think that we have, we've come to the place where hopefully a little bit of us might rub off on them. But remember where the question was asked, was it Ezekiel, one of the prophets, uh, might have been one of the minor prophets, I forget which one it is, but he was asked if something that is clean touches something that's unclean, what happens? Well, it's unclean. In other words, when clean touches unclean, it makes the clean unclean. But if something that is unclean is touched by the clean, does that make it clean? And the answer is no. There is that tendency for the unclean to rub off far more than the other way around. We even talk about our kids, that they pick up all of our bad habits. We wish they'd have some of our good habits. But they do tend to focus in on sometimes the bad habits. And that's, that's a little bit cynical because our kids do pick up a lot of the good things as well. But it seems like they pick up the bad things. And we need to understand that when we are with other people in the world, we have to be circumspect. We have to walk with wisdom toward those who are around us because... If we don't, we're not going to use our time very wisely. We need to redeem the time. Yes, we have outside associates and so forth, but do they rub off on us or do we use the time that we have with them carefully? Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Now, maybe there are other levels of meaning to that, but that seems to fit because you have those that 
the, the concept of redeeming the time along with walking with wisdom toward those who are outside. In Mr. Crockett's commentary, he asks, how then do we redeem the time? One way is to avoid wasting time on foolish pursuits. This does not mean that we should not take time to relax, perhaps to enjoy a good book or pursue a stimulating hobby, but it means that we should look for activities that glorify God and promote our well-being and the well-being of those around us. In other words, let me put it another way. It's not only about how much you accomplish in a day, it's about what you accomplish in a day. We often use words such as priorities, or we must prioritize what we have to do. But choosing the most important thing goes deeper than we might sometimes realize. It's not the thing that, well, let me just put it this way. It's important not only to have an important thing to do, it's important that that thing that we have to do fits with our vision and our goal in life. Because we can spend a lot of time on things that seem important, but if they're leading us in the wrong direction, and maybe not a bad direction, just the wrong direction, then it's not going to help us. Remember Mr. Armstrong in his autobiography spoke of that clay project that he got involved in? Well, at the time it seemed like the thing to do. But when things weren't working well for him and he had time to fast and pray about it and think about it, he realized that he had gotten too wrapped up in a sidetrack, too wrapped up in something that was not a part of his main goal and mission in life. So prioritizing does involve knowing what our vision is, what is truly important. Does what we do promote our life's vision, our life's goal? Does what we do fall in line with activities that will glorify God and promote our well-being and the well-being of those around us? Does it promote the major goal that we have of doing the work of God? I often ask the question, if God is not calling everyone, why is He calling anyone? Some misunderstand what that means. One fellow thought that I meant by that that, well, God is trying to call everybody. Of course not. The fact is, God is only calling a small number of people in this world right now. So if God is calling a few now, why isn't He calling everyone? And there's a very simple answer, and that is to do a work. God has called us for a purpose to do a work, to be a part of that work, whether it be in our prayers, our tithes, our light shining. God has called us to do something, not just anything, but a very specific thing. Let's consider some of the things that we do with our time. You all know the first one I'm going to mention, television. Movies. I remember back in the 80s, I worked at the summer camp in 1986 in Big Sandy. And I remember 
how so many of the people there, some of the faculty members, some of the uh, married folks there, the big thing was to go down to the store and get a video. A video to watch. And that was seemingly the goal of each day. You go through the day and you go get a video that evening. I began to, to think that there's something just not right here. Because how many good videos, how many good movies are there? And if you're watching one every day, there's no way you can watch all good movies. And what happens is you watch the best that's out there, and then you lower your standards just a little bit. Well, a little bit of bad language is okay. Well, a little bit of adultery may be okay. A a little bit of violence might be all right. Because there isn't enough out there that's really good. Even some of the older movies that I've gone back and looked at since I've gotten older were not nearly as clean as I thought they were. There was a lot of innuendo and that sort of thing. Email, texting, Facebook, YouTube, video games, even reading, if it's the wrong thing, can be something that we spend a lot of time with. How much of our lives are consumed by these outside influences? How much real benefit do we receive from these things? And who do we think is behind all these time consumers? Now, please don't misunderstand. In the right balance, some of these things can be good. They can be a diversion. I know that when I read a lot, I have to get away from reading or the the uh, uh, computer screen because I, I'm seeing double. Not not this way, but this way. I, I get out of work sometimes and I go there and there are traffic lights and there are two green lights and two red lights. And so uh, maybe some of the rest of you have that problem. So sometimes you have to get away from those things. Sometimes look at something further away. And there can be things that can be beneficial in their proper perspective. Even Christ said to the disciples, let's get away. You've been busy. Let's get away into the wilderness for a while. We all need those diversions. But who do we think is behind most of these time consumers? In a September-October 2000 Living Church News editorial, Dr. Meredith wrote the following. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul exhorts us, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Then he goes on to say, if our body is given to God and our mind is renewed, just how do these actions express themselves in our daily lives? Should we watch the same amount of television that our neighbors do? Should we spend the same amount of time shooting the breeze, going to ball games, reading novels, or just kicking back, as the kids say, and doing nothing? If not, why not? The key element in all this is the proper use of our time. When you give your life to God, you should realize that this means giving your time to God. 
For your life is composed of just so much time. Jesus commanded, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And you can go back there, that's Matthew 6, 33, and he's talking about the things of this world, food, clothing, shelter, so forth. He says, obviously, if you seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, you will use your time as it is needed to do this. You will have to learn to discipline yourself in your use of this very precious element in life. Isn't that what it gets down to, is a certain level of self-discipline? I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself. But I'm not real happy with myself in my discipline of the use of time. I think of how much more I could accomplish if I used my time better. And I think that most of us, maybe not everybody here, most of us, if we really analyze our lives, we probably could say the same thing. Now, we're not saying by this that every minute of every day has to be calculated to do something wonderfully profitable. Certainly, it's not wrong to sit down with a cup of coffee in the morning and just kick back a little bit. Shouldn't use that term too much since in the article here, but sometimes we need to relax the mind. Sometimes over that cup of coffee we can meditate a little bit on things. I I know coming on the plane. I I do three things when I'm on a plane, usually. Sometimes I'll watch a movie or something, but generally speaking, I'll read a little bit, and after about seven or eight minutes, I'm ready to take a nap. (laughs) And I'll take a nap. And I'll wake up and be served my coffee, and I may just look out the window there or just look ahead and and think about things in life. A little bit of meditation is probably the the best meditation I have is sometimes on a plane. And then I'm back to sleep again, and then I read a little bit and take a nap, and I could do that for quite a long time. I don't know about planes. They just make me tired. And But I get a lot of good reading and a lot of meditation. We need that downtime. I heard... Uh, the daughter of Alan Funt. Remember Alan Funt started the, uh, what was it called, Candid Camera? And wonderful, wonderful television series as far as anything because of just human nature and seeing the funny things human beings do. And, and she talked about, I think it was white space. I think it was in Kansas City at the RCMA. White space. We, we, sometimes we, our lives are so busy that we don't have time to just have some white space around it where we, like the magazine, you you don't fill all the way to the edge. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about that. You need white space to focus it. And we just need time sometimes to do nothing. But that should be profitable, to relax the mind, to help the mind to think more clearly. Our minds today are so cluttered with everything We don't know what it's like for things to be quiet. We've got to have the radio on in the car. We've got to have the television on if we're at home. We've got to have that little gadget on our belt or in our pocket where we're getting texts back and forth all the time. We've got to be in communication with people. And they they know that, studies show that people who spend all their time that way on all these, what they call social media, 
are some of the most lonely people in the world. And if they just put it down, throw it in the sink with water on it, (laughs) and go out and meet their neighbors, they'd be more fulfilled. And you actually could be a light to your neighbor. It goes on to say here, they just sort of wander through life letting things happen to them here and there, wasting time and not accomplishing nearly as much as they could. Now, when we speak of white space, we're not talking about everything being white space. We're just talking about there's a time and a place for all things. However, true Christians should be filled with zest, enthusiasm, and purpose as they have a real reason for living. They have genuine goals and projects that they want to accomplish. Zealously converted Christians want to be sure to take time for proper prayer and Bible study or it says proper Bible study, for fervent and intensive prayer and for practicing the art of meditation. Thinking things through carefully and truly contemplating God's law and all its ramifications as King David did, Psalm 119, verse 97. And they will set aside time for fasting regularly to spend extra time in a situation of humility and purpose seeking God intensely the true Christian will realize that we are now in training to rule entire cities and perhaps nations in tomorrow's world. Do you realize that even the Apostle Paul in his day had to address the subject of how we use our time, what we think about, what we do? We've already seen that he said we need to redeem the time. But notice Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians 3 and verse 1. He says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's where we should be spending our time, seeking those things above. When we find ourselves wrapped up in the same things the world is, to the same degree, we're not seeking the things above, we're seeking things on this earth. Again, there's balance. I know that Mr. Armstrong liked to watch basketball occasionally with a big Lakers fan. But if you were around Mr. Armstrong, and I wasn't around him nearly as much as Dr. Maris and Mr. Ames and perhaps some others, if you were around him very long, the conversation got back to the work of God and the purpose of life. Those are the things that consumed him doing the will of God, and and why are we here? But he also knew how to relax from time to time as well. But that was the diversion. That wasn't the main course. That was the dessert, you might say. Well, we really wanted the dessert because that makes it sound like that's, that's the best part of it. So that's a wrong way of putting it. But that was, you have to have some downtime. You have to have time to do other things. You have to live a balanced life. If you live a balanced life, if you do maybe a little bit of hunting, as Mr. McNair used to do, or a little bit of fishing, when you go into somebody's house, a neighbor's house, and you see a a fish on the wall or a a deer head there, you can talk to them about things that they're interested in as opposed to what you might be interested in. So living a balanced life is important. But that doesn't mean that we spend all of our balance in the world or the things that the world does and having the same enthusiasm for 
sports and so forth. You see people who, whose whole lives are built around a particular sports team. That should not be us. In Colossians 3 again, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice over in Philippians, the fourth chapter. Here are the things that we should have our minds on. These are the things we should dwell upon. Finally, brethren, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8. Some of you have this memorized. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue... And if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Those are the things that should fill our minds and our lives. To a degree, the world has never known before, to a degree that the world has never known before, we face two major problems concerning the use of our time in our day-to-day. First of all, we have the wasteful things that we choose to do perhaps watching too much television. But there's something else that has crept into our lives in a way that it it never could before. And a lot of this is very recent times. And those are the interruptions from outside that consume our time, our lives. During the 1992 Winter Games, Olympic Games, in Albertville, France, They had the demonstration sport of speed skiing. Now, this is not slalom or the, the, the racing down the hill where they're going back and forth between the flags. This was a demonstration sport, and I don't think it ever was used at any other time besides the, uh, in the Olympics, besides 1992. At least I'm not aware of it if it has. But this is where They stand at the top of a hill, strapped to two boards, and let loose for three or four hundred yards or meters to pick up speed straight down the hill. And for the next hundred meters, they measure the speed. And the next 500 meters is used to slow down, called speed skiing. A fellow by the name of Vince Pacente raced to a Canadian national record of 135 miles per hour. For our internationals, that's 216.7 kilometers per hour on skis. You see skydivers where they're stretched out like this, they don't travel that fast. This is very, well, if they point down, they will, but if they're stretched out, they don't travel that fast. (laughs) This is a tremendous, have you ever been in a car going 135 miles per hour? You talk about a kamikaze sport. Well, Vince Pacenti was told by an individual that he, uh, it was some sort of a fortune teller when he was young, that he wouldn't live past 40 years of age. And although he knew it probably wasn't true, he was always obsessed with speed. And so it wasn't just 
speed going downhill. But he was obsessed with speed in other ways. And so he became a motivational speaker and an author. And he's written several books, but in his book, The Age of Speed, he writes the following. Take a step back for a moment. Examine the ways you're spending, I'm sorry, examine the ways you're expending your energy and resources and ask yourself, are they aligned with my vision? Are they aligned with my vision? What is your vision? What is your goal? What is your purpose? What is our collective purpose and what is our individual purpose? The things that we do, just stand back, as he says, and examine yourself. The things that you do, are they aligned with your vision? On page 155, he writes, We drown ourselves in trivia and excess. We can spend most of the day tending to unimportant requests and soaking in expertise on any subject available. Does this make us more productive or just busier? Does it make our lives better or just more complicated? This really is what we're facing today. Satan is the author of many of these things. I don't mean that the Internet is, is totally evil. We use it. It's a wonderful tool. Texting can be a wonderful tool. But you, you look at people today, and it doesn't matter where they are, they're, they're just texting away. We have a new phenomenon. People are getting run over. They don't know where they are. They're being injured by walking into things. Because they're looking, I'm not kidding, this is true. Been reports on the subject. Because our whole lives are built around that. There are laws against texting while driving, and yet I see it all the time. People texting while they're driving. It's scary out there. When you see somebody like that, you don't pull in front of them. You give them plenty of space, plenty of white space, plenty of all kinds of space. I'd like to read a little bit from his book, The Age of Speed, uh, page 141. This is, is quite interesting. I, I, a lot of times I'll buy a book and it'll just sit on my shelf for a while and then for some reason I'll pick it up and, and I'll find out that, wow, how come I didn't read that before? Today's most common source of drag, that which slows us down, for individuals is obsessive multitasking. Ironically, something we do in an effort to speed up, to get more out of each moment. We don't even like to eat without doing something else at the same time. 91% of Americans watch television while they eat. 26% admit that they often eat while driving. Guilty. And 36% eat lunch at their desk while reading, working on the computer. I don't do that too often. Or making and receiving phone calls. The problem is that multitasking doesn't necessarily speed us up. Sometimes it slows us down. It adds clutter and chaos to our lives in an era that demands speed as never before. Brain scan studies reveal that if we do two tasks at the same time, we have only half of our usual brain power to devote to each. Now, 
if that's all there was, okay, half here, half there, it's still 100% of our brain power being used. The problem is that it's half here and it's half there, and we miss half of this and half of that, or a portion of it. We cannot possibly give the full benefit of our attention or receive the full benefit of another person's input if we're splitting our focus. So we dilute our engagement and thus increase the time it will take to complete both tasks. How many times have you had to ask someone to repeat what she said because you're reading an email while she was talking? I don't know why he uses the she here. Probably it's because most of us men read the newspaper or do something else while our wives are talking to us. (laughs) Guilty again. (laughs) Did multitasking reduce the time you spent in the conversation or increase it? Multitasking isn't the only issue. A different but related trend is that of accepting constant interruptions. A study involving 36 office workers found that, on average, they spent only 11 minutes of a typical workday focused on a given task before being interrupted. 11 minutes without an interruption. And once interrupted, it took them nearly a half hour to return the task, if they did so at all. Another study of more than 11,000 office workers revealed that interruptions caused more than two hours of lost productivity per day. 25% of the workday wasted. Researchers concluded that workplace interruptions cost the U.S. economy nearly $600 billion annually. And then he has a fast fact. This is interesting. Multitasking and gadget interruptions, gadget texting, all this sort of thing, are being mentioned more often in therapy sessions. Family therapists report that children feel neglected and rejected when their parents obsessively check email during their time together. And one Massachusetts psychologist, I'm sorry, psychiatrist, told Time magazine of a patient whose husband insisted on keeping his Blackberry in bed while making love. It used to be Johnny Carson. (laughs) Now it's blackberries. Sometimes we we laugh, and it's okay to laugh occasionally, but how sad it is. During the ministerial conference, there's an evening that we have called Taming the Email Tiger. Uh, Best practices for getting control of your email. If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you feel like email is drowning you? I I think that probably a lot of hands would go up if we're honest. It's so hard to control that. Because somebody sends you something and it's so interesting, or it's so humorous, or it's so informative. And if you're not careful, you can easily waste two hours a day by being interrupted by all these wonderful things that come our way. God has called you and me to a purposeful existence. There are several 
parables that Jesus gave that we don't often think of in terms of use of time, but I'd like to bring them out in that. Let's go to Matthew, the 13th chapter, first of all. Matthew 13, uh, the parable of the sower, and I know that you're all very familiar with it, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but remember the sower comes along and he throws seed out there and some falls by the wayside and the birds pluck it up very quickly and then others fall on shallow ground and rocky ground and it springs up very quickly and looks real good real quick, but the sun comes out and it quickly dies because it doesn't have enough root. Then there are the seeds that are thrown into areas that weeds come up and they choke it off and then finally there's some that lands on the proper ground that brings forth fruit. So when Jesus explains it in verse 18, he says, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. People watch the, the, the telecast, they pick up a magazine, and then they, uh, they just don't get it. It just goes right over their head. That's not talking about you and me, I don't think, or we wouldn't be here. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, that could apply to some who are here. Those of us who have been around 30 and 40 years, it probably doesn't apply to. I'm not saying we shouldn't take warning from it, but it probably doesn't apply to us unless we've just never had any persecution yet. But the next one is the one that most of us have to worry about, especially in light of the sermon today. Now he, verse 22, who receives seed among the thorns, is he who hears the word of God, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Now maybe you're not one that's out there trying to get rich. But I remember when I first came to North Carolina, listening to men in Spokesman Club and a question had come up this many years ago, 1983. But the question came up, what would you do if you had a million dollars? And boy, the men got into it. They thought this was wonderful. And, and another question, what is your goal in life? And somebody said, I want to be a millionaire by age 35. This sounded so strange from everything I'd ever learned in the church. But that was their goal. Most people in the church that stay in the church are people who have goals not to become rich but to do something better than somebody else. In other words, then maybe start a business and do it better than anybody else out there or at least a good job of it. Or, or they're so good at what they do that everything works out for them as opposed to the goal, I'm going to be rich. But the cares of this world... The things of this world, there are people who take their, their iPhones or iPads or whatever it is to bed with them so they can check. I don't even know what these things are. I, I do have one, but I don't even know what it's called. Anyway, they take these things to bed with them. They check it right before they go to bed. They check it the first thing in the morning. And some don't even have time for prayer and study because it's, I just can check one. And that leads to another, to another, to another. Oh, I just want to check my email quickly. And pretty soon it's late. You can't get up in the morning. Or when you get up in the morning, you check it. And pretty soon you've got to be off to work. 
These things consume our time without us even realizing it. Satan knows what he's doing. And yet all of these tools can be used for a good purpose as the work does. But the cares of this world choke us. We become unfruitful. And then in verse 23 it says, He who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now think about that for a moment. Some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. Why do some produce a hundredfold and some produce thirtyfold? It might be innate ability. But also, doesn't it have to do with how we use our time? God doesn't want us to be looking around and saying, Oh, he's a 30 fruit over there. <laughs> or there's a 60 fruit, I'm a 100 fruit. It doesn't want us to do that, obviously. But how we use our time, does that not affect how much we're going to produce? Let's take a look at another parable. Chapter 25, Matthew 25, and we'll pick it up in verse 20. Again, we're breaking into thoughts here. This is the parable of the talents. Remember, he gave these talents, and one man's talent gained five, another one's gained two, and then we have the other one that uh, we'll look at here briefly. But verse 20, it says, So he who received five talents came and brought five other talents. I'm sorry, he was given more talents. And he produced five more. He doubled it, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. And then another one comes to him and says, well, uh, you gave me two talents and I doubled them. God obviously has given us more abilities, some more abilities. But let's notice verse 24. Then he who received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent on the ground. Look, here you have what is yours. I've kept it very safe here. But his Lord answered and said to him, and this is the part or part of it that I want to get to, you wicked and lazy servant. You wicked and lazy Servant. What defines laziness? Is it not how we use our time? Whether we lay down on the couch and just let the world entertain us, or whether we get off the couch and go out and do something productive. You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. And he tells him what he should have done concerning that. And he says in verse 30, Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's take a look at a third parable, Luke the 19th chapter. This is the parable of the minas. Luke 19 and verse 12. This is where the nobleman went into a far country and he gave ten servants. Uh, each of them, he delivered to them ten minas. He said, Do business till I come again. Now let's notice down, we find that the one took the, the uh, mina, 
and he developed five, I'm sorry, ten minas. And verse 16, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said, verse 17, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. That's at least part of our reward in the kingdom of God, not just having eternal life, but actively ruling and bringing peace to this earth, helping as Christ does guide us. This is more literal than perhaps we thought when we were attending the Protestant church, if we even read this, even heard it. Then one came up and his mina gained five, and he likewise said to him, verse 19, you also be over five cities. And then we find this individual who has the one mina, and he just protects it. He had the same number of minas, one, as everybody else, but he doesn't do a thing with it. And Christ in the parable tells him he should have put it in the bank. Then verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten. And Jesus said, I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now, what we're finding here is that the one who took the same beginning part and developed more than the others, God was pleased with the one that gained five minus, and he was pleased with the one that gained ten minus. But when it came to having one that was left over, who did he give it to? the man that gained the most. And so what do we always say? If you have something, a job that needs to be done, give it to a busy man. Because those with lots of time on their hands don't always accomplish that much. If we think of these parables in terms of time, it's instructive. It's not always how we use every minute of our time. Please don't anybody misunderstand that I'm saying that we have to do, you know, take every single minute and, and make it profitable in terms of accomplishing something. I, I remember when I first came to the church and I went to Ambassador College and I remember that scripture says, whatever your hand finds, do, do it with your might. And so I run from one job to another. God doesn't expect us to, it was okay, I guess, but God doesn't expect us to run to every job and probably tick off all of our co-workers uh, and, and make everybody else look bad or something. Uh, God expects us to use some common sense, some, some balance to everything we do. But we have to be very careful that we don't look at balance as an excuse for squandering our lives. There are three presidents I'd like to refer to, Nixon, Carter, and Reagan. And Nixon and Carter were known as hard workers, they worked long hours. Carter especially was very, Mr. Carter, was especially uh, given to detail. And if we look back on their presidencies, Nixon was successful in some things, not so successful in other things. Opening up to China was a major accomplishment, but Watergate didn't work out so well. <laughs> Mr. Carter in most people's view, was not overly successful. But then came along a fellow by the name of Ronald Reagan, and people thought of him as lazy. At least some people did. And if you read any books about Mr. Reagan, 
what you find is that he didn't, in a sense, work long hours at the job, but he did read a lot. He always was taking notes. He had note cards, and he'd be writing things down for speeches, and he'd be reading a lot. But he took life at a much more measured and calm pace than some others. And yet he accomplished a great deal. He had a lot to do with the fall of the the Berlin Wall, the, the collapse of communism. In his second term, he was elected by 49% of the, not 49%, 49 of the 50 um, states, only losing the one state by about 3,000 votes, and that was the, the home of his opponent. Very successful, very popular president. Not because he spent every minute of every day, quote, working, being busy, but he knew what was important. He knew what he believed in. He knew what he wanted to do, and he focused on that. And that's the way that we need to be. We need to know what's important. And again, this is not an excuse to be lazy or an excuse to take in the world, but we need to have focus in our lives. We need to know why we're here, where we're going, and we need to use our time commensurate with our vision and our goals. Peter Drucker and the effective executive, Dr. Meredith gave me this book, very fine book, small one, but very important, and he's quoted this quote before. But a very powerful statement. He says, the supply of time is totally inelastic. No matter how high the demand, the supply will not go up. There is no price for it and no marginal utility cure for it. Moreover, time is totally perishable and cannot be stored. Yesterday's time is gone forever and will never come back. Time is therefore always an exceedingly short supply. Time is totally irreplaceable. Within limits, we can substitute one resource for another, copper for aluminum, for instance, We can substitute capital for human labor. We can use more knowledge or more brawn. But there is no substitute for time. Everything requires time. It is the only truly universal condition. All work takes place in time and uses up time. Yet most people take for granted this unique, irreplaceable, and necessary resource. Nothing else perhaps distinguishes effective executives or effective Christians, for that matter, as much as their tender, loving care of time. And then his next statement is very instructive. Man is ill-equipped to manage his time. I'd like to finish by quoting from Romans, the 13th chapter, verses 11 to 14. He says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, 
we could add maybe texting or a lot of other things that could be added to that. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts.